Good morning. My name is Keith. Uh, I am, as I said in the first service, unreasonably excited to be able to share the Word with you this morning. Uh, you'll notice there's a tank over here. We had baptisms during the first service, which we were very uh, excited about. And uh, I brought up the proposition. I don't know if uh, Pastor Brandon, of course, is out of town uh, uh, mourning with his family um, over the loss of uh, a niece, and so we continue to pray for him. And so I don't know if he'll be watching at all, or, but... Um, I proposed this morning in the first service that we turn this into a dunk tank, just leave it up here, and then we preach from that, and then if anybody has uh, biblical contention for something that we're saying, they're welcome to try to dunk us. But it was pointed out to me after I proposed that, that you could have really good theology and a bad arm, and you still wouldn't. So maybe that's not as great an idea as I previously thought it was, but um, I also wanted to share with you guys, I love my daughters, and one of my daughters got me this great shirt. It says, uh, bad theology hurts people, and so I made a promise that I would wear this this morning, and it's kind of a plug also for a great podcast called Cultish. If you've never listened to it and you're a podcast person, please, please do that. But now to the, the task at hand. We are in a series on uh, evangelism, right? sharing Christ with others, and we talked about sharing Christ in the home. Uh, we've talked about sharing Christ with our neighbors, and today we get to talk a little bit more about sharing Christ at work and at school, using primarily the text of 1 Peter 3, 8 through 17. Now, here's just a little bit about me, and it'll be relevant here in a moment. I love apologetics. If you're not sure what apologetics is, it's basically uh, presenting a reasonable and reasoned defense for the faith um, that we have in the gospel. Um, it's what actually is being talked about here in First Peter. And I love apologetics, especially over so many years of working with uh, middle school and high school students. Uh, I love engaging objections to Christianity and also training others to engage those objections. I've been to fantastic conferences, just amazing apologetics conferences, and actually the emphasis in my master's degree is an emphasis on apologetics, so I, I love it. I've uh, devoted a lot of my life to studying how to defend the faith and how to give reasoned responses. However, I have to admit to you that more times than I would like, uh, there have been a lot of instances in which I had really great arguments. I mean, they were solid, right? Good citations, logical conclusions. I could quote philosophers, right? And I could quote Nietzsche and show where he was a little bit messed up, you know. Um, I could, could, could quote some great old theologians, and I had passion in my presentation, and then I still fell flat, and the person or persons in front of me still did not believe that Christ was Lord. Can you guys even imagine that? So I failed, right? I must have forgotten that Paul, even after addressing the Areopagus, only had some who believed, and then some stuck around to hear more, and then some just mocked him, right? And that is the reality, right? The reality is we can enter our workplace, we can enter our school, we can enter our neighborhood with the best presentations of why uh, Christianity should be believed in, and yet people are still like, no, not having it, right? What's with that, Right? Now, I want you to hear me. I, I love apologetics, obviously. I think Christians should exercise their minds. I think Christians should engage culture with biblical ideas and intellectual support for those ideas. So just keep that in your mind as we go through this morning, right? You also may not think that that's a very encouraging introduction. Well, if somebody who studied this stuff is still not able to reach people, you know, for, the, for Christ with the gospel, if this doesn't work every time, then what hope do I have in being able to accomplish this? Uh, so why, why shouldn't I just give up? Well, hold on. You may not think that that beginning is encouraging 
unless you believe that Jesus Christ really is Lord, regardless of the opinions or reactions of others. And this is where sharing Christ really begins. So in this text this morning, I'm not really a linear thinker, and when I'm studying this passage, the thing that jumped out to me as sort of being the crux of this passage was verse 15, right? So let's look at verse 15 together. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, right? We are, too, primarily as Christians, when we think about sharing Jesus Christ, especially in work and school, right, is we are supposed to set apart Christ as holy in our hearts, set Him apart as holy, as altogether other. This isn't supposed to be just an intellectual exercise, right? It's not just having information. You can have a lot of information, and it still doesn't make it from here to here, right? It's not an information dump. This is built on a conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we say Lord, we mean actively ruling and reigning and exerting all of His power over all of the universe. When Christ resurrected from the dead because of His obedience, it says in Scripture that God raised Him to the highest place in all the universe. Every galaxy, all of creation is held together actively by Jesus. There's not one place in the universe that He is not ruling and reigning over. That's what it means to be convinced that Christ is Lord, right? The whole world should hear this. It's a conviction. Even Paul in Acts chapter 17, the reason he got a hearing with the Areopagus, he was able to talk to these smart people, is he was so provoked by them missing the gospel that he was driven to have as many conversations as he could with everybody that he met because they needed to know that Christ was Lord. And it's exactly what he says in his presentation. Look, you're, you're feeling around for something. You just don't know yet that it's Jesus. You don't know yet that it's God. And, and all people are going to be held responsible to this one who is ruling and reigning. That's what got him a hearing in the first place. So sharing Christ is not just giving the right information to people but imparting to others what we have ourselves received, right? It's like it's been said before that sharing the gospel with others is like one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread, right? Like, oh, I found this. I want to show you where to find it. But if I just tell you that there's great bread out there, right? I've heard there's great bread out there, right? And, and I tell you, maybe I even know how it's made. I can describe to you the entire process of how yeast works and stuff. I know how it's made and that it's real, but I've never myself tasted it, and I don't know where to tell you to get it, that's really frustrating, right? Especially if you're starving. For me to give you a bunch of information on bread but not show you actually where to get it and to testify to how satisfying it actually is, that's not very helpful. So it's not just information. It's conviction and experience that Christ actually is Lord. And Peter, writing to suffering and scattered Christians, imparts to these believers the profound effects of setting Christ apart as Lord in our hearts. Instead of information about Jesus, simply, we share what we have actually, not just theoretically, received from Him. There's a really great book called Covenantal Apologetics by a guy named Scott Oliphant. And uh, if you've uh, not had the opportunity to read it, I would encourage you to uh, maybe write it down. If you want to ask me later, I can point you to it. But he says the lordship of Christ is basic to our defense of Christianity. Christ now reigns. He is Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That authority is the prerequisite to the command to make disciples. Without that authority, baptism and disciple-making in and for the church are meaningless. 
All things have been placed under his feet, and Christ has been given as head over all things to the church, Ephesians 1, 22. The process of history is the process of making Christ's enemies a footstool for his feet. So wherever you go, to whomever you speak, Christ is Lord there, and he is Lord over that person. It doesn't matter. If you encounter somebody, it's like, I don't believe that. You can confidently, maybe not say out loud at the moment, but you can confidently be sure. It doesn't matter if they believe that or not. It doesn't change the reality that Christ is actively ruling and reigning. Whether or not they assent to that doesn't change the reality that Jesus really is Lord, that Jesus really is God, that he really did die on the cross, a completely sinless man for the sinful, that he really was buried in the grave, that he really was brought to glorious life and resurrection, that he really is ruling and reigning. What they think about that doesn't change the reality. doesn't change it. That's what it means to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. And it makes all the difference that Christ is reigning. Any confidence in sharing Christ with other people has to come from this reality. Otherwise, it's either all chance or it's all our efforts, neither of which actually brings us any comfort or confidence, right? Like Jesus has to be in control of all this. This reality changes the way that we approach the major areas that we have in in opportunity of sharing Christ. And I would say, and Peter would say, that it's in our speech and in our suffering in the words that come out of our mouth, and in the way that we encounter tribulation or suffering in this world. Verses 8 through 12 in our speech. Peter calls on these believers to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Right? These are the results of believing that Christ is Lord. Do you see that? Like he go, going backwards here, right to the beginning, from set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. When you do that, this is what it creates in you. Humility sympathy, brotherly love. You're sensitive and tender towards other believers because you're on the same team. You both believe that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. You're both committed to that same reality. Jesus is Lord of both of you, and not just both of you, but even everybody who doesn't admit it yet, right? All people will stand before Jesus. Those who are in Christ will go to be with Him in glory. Those who have rejected Christ will go to suffer eternally because of their rejection of Him, right? But Jesus is still Lord over all people, He still holds his position, right? These are the results, Peter says, of believing that Christ is Lord. We set all of our hope in that reality that Christ is Lord, which is very similar to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, right? That all of our actions, all of our words are ultimately drawn from our internal hope and core conviction about the control of the world. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, right? That Christ could have held on to his his uh, power as, as, as divinity in terms of like, no, I'm not going to subject myself to humiliation. But he did. He let go of that grasping in order to take the form of a servant to be obedient to death on a cross. And because of that, because of Christ's humility, because of Christ's sacrifice, it said that God has exalted him to the highest place in the whole universe, right? So let that mind be in us, that humility of mind, but it comes with a conviction that Jesus is the one who has conquered all. That's why we can be humble in mind. That's why we can live like that. And you might say, well, that statement that Peter's making, it's about actions, it's not just speech. And you're right, but the way in which we are most apt to display what's actually in our hearts is through our mouths, right? Jesus said that. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I said in the first service, nobody can be like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. You did mean to say that. You did, right? Like if you're like, you're such a jerk. I'm sorry, later, I didn't mean to say that. No, you did. You thought it. You probably thought it a million times and it just slipped out of your mouth because you were off your guard. Yeah? But we can never say, I didn't mean to say that because Jesus is like, what's here comes out here, right? What we really are convicted of in here is what's going to bubble over in our mouths. In far too many cases, our actual hope, right, shows when whatever it is comes out of our mouths or maybe our keyboards. And I would say keyboards are worse because with mouths, you really can't kind of slip up and something fly out. Keyboards are pretty premeditated. If you sat there typing for 30 minutes and erasing and typing, and then you, and you're like, yes, I owned everybody. Like, that's way more premeditated, right? You've had time to think about that. That's not an accident. Well, I didn't mean to type that and then hit enter, right? And then like it and then share it, right? Like, you can't say that. Verse 9 goes a little bit farther. Not paying evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. The sanctifying Christ in our lives, in our hearts, being convinced of Christ's lordship, it's not just for us to be agreeable, but to actively bless others with what we contribute in conversation, right? It's not that we just milk toast, but that we are actually a blessing to people when we talk to them. It's not just about avoiding certain speech, but being so convinced that Christ is Lord that we are able to respond with grace in the same way that Christ did not return reviling when he was reviled. Like what allows us to be able to hold our tongues and, and smile and bless others when they're tearing us down is when we are absolutely convinced that they don't control our lives, Jesus does. And Jesus controls their lives as well. And there is nothing they can do or say to us that will change that reality. I mean, that changes everything. If your security is in Christ alone, you're not insecure when other people come at you, right? That's true. It's true. Now, this doesn't mean we can't have disagreement and debate with people or in public forums or somebody at work or somebody at school. Paul gladly engaged in these things. It does mean, however, that those debates and discussions always come from a place of honoring Christ, not winning an argument, right? Like, not, not I'm going to own this person right now. It's, it's, honoring Christ, and not defending our own honor or our own intellect. Now, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Many times when I get frustrated, it's because I don't want people to think I'm dumb. I want to be the smartest guy in the room, right? All this studying that I've done, if I'm engaging somebody in a discussion about the reality of Christ or apologetics, I do, like, sinfully at times, I just want to win. I just want to shut their mouths, right? I want to say something that they're going to have no response to. But in those moments, I'm not really displaying that I believe that Christ is Lord, what I'm displaying is that I have the power and the ability to shut this person's mouth, right? Now, that person, if they stay without Christ, Christ will stop their mouths, right? When Christ wraps everything up, I can entrust Jesus to rule and reign because I don't have that power and I'm not benevolent like he is. Too many professing Christians take joy in owning other people or making people feel or look stupid, and too many professing believers are happy to jump on profanity or euphemism used against other people made in the image of God just to feel better about making a point, okay? I'm going to say something that might upset some of you, and it, I'm okay with that, and I'll explain it here in a second. One of the things that's bothered me the most about, like, what some of us 
conservative Christians have engaged in in the last year or so. It's like the whole let's go Brandon thing. It's, that's not cool. It's not cool, right? And you, you'd be like, oh, he's liberal. That's why I'm not liberal. Look, follow me around. Like, I was, like when I was in high school, one of my, the weirdest things about me is I, I read all of Rush Limbaugh's books that were out by the time I graduated from high school. Now some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy, and that's okay, right? But along, over time, over time, I was like, I don't think I want to be like this guy. I don't think I want to talk like this guy because I have friends that struggle, and maybe they're not in the same place that I am, and I would much rather reach them for Christ than just own them. Does that make sense? And that's why I'm saying that is because, like, for you of my friends, either watching or in the room, and you're, you're a little irritated right now that I said that, just understand that that's not that doesn't show a place of belief that Jesus Christ really is in control. That's from a place of frustration and feeling like we got a raw deal. Look, whoever is president or whoever is king of whatever country or dictator of whatever country, the reality is Jesus is still in control. Nobody's where they are outside of his control. Believing that Christ is Lord means that we don't panic and flip out when things don't go our way, no matter who's in those positions. And so we bless people, and we speak with kindness, and we speak with humility, because we don't have to solve those universal problems, because Jesus has already solved it. You see what a difference that makes? Like when we're confident that Christ is Lord, it doesn't mean we don't get frustrated with things. It just means that ultimately it doesn't bubble over in us denigrating the image of God in other people simply because we don't like what's happening. And back to the sermon. To further emphasize his point on this, Peter points to Psalm 34, and he quotes the part of the psalm. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The whole psalm is about those who fear the Lord or those who have set him apart as holy. Much of the psalm actually speaks to the righteous as those who primarily cry out to the Lord and look to him. You see, when we get pressed, when we feel like closed in, when we feel like we're in environments that are not friendly to the proclamation of Jesus or to our faith, whatever we are hoping in is going to get squeezed out of us. And that's those moments where we see, do we really believe that Jesus is Lord? Are we really convinced that Jesus has got this? Because it seems like it's out of control, right? Our source of hope will make itself known, which might be our trust in our own intelligence or in our own ability to convince other people to agree with us. Whatever is in us that's not honoring Christ as Lord is going to make itself known, and it's never going to be pretty. And you've experienced that, most of you. I know that I have when you're squeezed. When we think about actually sharing Christ with others, words become immensely important. Think for a second that God has condescended to his creatures by speaking to them, and he's communicated to us in a language that we can understand. God doesn't have to do that. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. God has spoken to us. Brothers and sisters, words are important, and we should be more careful with them. We should be more careful with them. If we've set Christ apart as holy, as Lord, how we speak should increasingly be formed according to that truth, right? Instead of primarily crying out against others, we become those who, as Psalm 34 says, cry out to the Lord. When you're pressed, if you believe that you're in control or someone else is in control, you'll feel more compelled to act out. If you believe that Christ is Lord, 
you'll cry out to God. You'll cry out to God. The more familiar we become with that response, the more naturally we then are able to speak of the goodness of Jesus. And then we reflect his character to others. If we really believe that Jesus is Lord and ruling and reigning over you and that person that's across from you, you don't have to solve everything in that moment. You don't have to win because Christ has won. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Do you believe Christ has won? Like he's parading his enemies around in the streets is what Colossians says. They are no threat. And human beings made in the image of God, are sinful and wrecked. But it should never be our goal just simply to destroy them. It should be our goal to share Christ with them so that they can come in conformity with what we know to be true, that Jesus really is reigning and he really is good. Christians, those who set apart Christ as Lord aren't those who fight with our words or our own strength. Instead, following the example of our Lord who has broken down the walls of hostility, we are those who seek peace and pursue it. Not secure it, but pursue it, right? Like sometimes when you're trying to make peace with somebody and they just hate who you are and they hate Christianity, I've engaged many, many, many angry people like atheists or um, relativists who just hate as soon as you start talking, okay? Okay. I don't have to secure peace with that person, but I do need to pursue it. But I don't pursue it because I just really want them to like me. I pursue it because I really believe that Christ is in control, right? It doesn't mean we don't try to say things that are meaningful or say things that are challenging, but it does mean that our primary goal isn't just to win the argument, right? Because we're secure, again, in Christ. And there's a positive aspect to speech that's derived from setting Christ apart in our hearts, right? If Jesus really is Lord of all and Lord over everyone, then we don't have to try to manipulate people either with words or cleverness in order to get them to admit as such. Our speech and our actions display either our complete confidence in Lord or the lack thereof, right? Paul, addressing the topic of Christ's lordship in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, gives us this exhortation, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God, right? Because he's primarily concerned with how does this look in front of God. I'm living in front of God, quorum Deo. I'm living before the face of God. I'm not primarily concerned about how people receive me because I know that Christ has received me. Yeah? That's good news. That's, that's security right there. And Paul later says in that passage, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. If you're sharing Christ with someone, right, and they're rejecting, you've got a, a, a tense work situation because you've been trying to talk to them about Jesus or a classmate at school, and you're trying to, and they're just, they just, there's some tension there, right? The good news is we're not trying to win them over to us, right? We're entrusting Christ to win them over to himself. That's why we share it, because we have confidence in Jesus, not necessarily confidence in ourselves, you know, this makes the biggest difference in the way that we speak with others and to others. We're not only careful to not to revile or curse others with our words, we're also careful to not try to manipulate people, right, to, to use arguments in order to kind of trick them into asserting Christ's lordship. Trusting in Christ's lordship in all spheres of life results in confidence in God's word to change hearts because Christ is really actively ruling and reigning over all people in all places in all conversations. It's so freeing. It's so freeing. Peter says in 
As he's quoting Psalm 34, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord, verse 12, are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we don't want to be those who the face of the Lord is against, right? That's what we don't want. But look at that. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. Do you believe that the Lord is the only source of real hope and the only one who can change hearts and lives? The reaction of the evil isn't what we are primarily to be concerned about, right? We might be like, oh, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, but we already know that. What do we see about the righteous? That the Lord's eyes and ears are on them and open to them. Our hope is in the Lord, and he sets his face to us, the righteous, his people who have already acknowledged this, who have been saved and changed. He sees us. He watches us. And he listens to us. If the God of the universe, if the Lord sovereign of all things pays attention to us, brothers and sisters, whom shall we fear? It's amazing. And to further take off the pressure to either attack someone out of frustration or smooth talk somebody out of manipulation, Paul reminds the church that if the gospel is veiled, it's only veiled to those who are perishing, right? They've been blinded by the evil one to walk in sin. They've been blinded to the gospel of Christ. So in all cases, we strive to set apart Christ as Lord as we engage with both believers and non-believers. If you share the gospel and somebody's not responding, it's not because you're not smart enough. It's not because you don't have good enough material. It's because unless the veil is removed by the Holy Spirit, they can't see the beauty of the gospel. But we still share because we don't know who is going to see it and who's not, right? That's why we proclaim to everybody that we come in contact with. Jesus is Lord. Over all places and all people. So let our words display this, right? Let our words display this confidence. It may not always seem that he favors the righteous, though. Yeah? You look at that and you're like, he favors the righteous. I've had a pretty rough streak. I understand. And there may be people around you who are wicked, who are just coming up roses. I get it. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I know. Even the psalmist asked, why did the wicked prosper? Why did the evil prosper? And in fact, though, the most unfair thing in history was the seeming victory of evil and the railroading of the only truly innocent person who ever lived. And I think you know who I'm talking about. The pure sacrificed for the guilty. So it's not like God doesn't know about unfairness. It's not like the Lord of the universe doesn't know what it's like to be turned on and to suffer unjustly. But we share from the place of being convinced that Christ is Lord, but not only in the words that we use, but maybe even more importantly in our suffering. Look at verses 13 through 17. 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you would be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, right? Now, I believe that many modern, westernized Christians have a very weak view of suffering. In many cases, we see it as either something to overcome victoriously or avoid rigorously. Now, I'm not saying that we don't experience some form of suffering, right? But when we think about persecution, the suffering of persecution, like, I have a hard time getting on board with the idea that right now there's a ton of Christian persecution in the United States, when I know for a fact that in Asia there are pastors who have acid thrown in their face by militant Muslims, uh, they, little girls that are set on fire and burned and raped and stuff like that, it's pretty hard for me to complain about how things are here persecution-wise, right? We, we, have to, we have to have a little bit stronger metal as Christians. 
I think we're, we're weak in the theology of suffering many times. It seems to either be to many punishment or passing inconvenience. If you're suffering, it's not because God is punishing you necessarily. Do you know what I mean? Because even if you belong to him and he's even bringing some discomfort into your life for correcting your behavior, that's called discipline and it's loving. It's, it's not punitive. It's never punitive. You never, you never, Christian, listen to me. You never endure suffering because God is mad at you. Never. Because he's never mad at you if you're in Christ. Amen? Never. Peter is writing to those who've been persecuted and scattered and emphasizes that suffering is something that should not seem strange to us. In fact, Peter seems to indicate that it is through suffering that Christians are able to display maybe the most powerful apologetic. Peter has just reminded his readers that the Lord is for the righteous and the Lord hears their prayers. And then he addresses not only the reality of suffering, but the certainty of suffering. You will suffer at some point, believer. You will. You're not, you're not left out of suffering in some way, shape, or form. And it may be in persecution for your faith. Maybe. Peter says, don't be surprised. And this doesn't make always sense to us, right? Unless we are convinced that Jesus is Lord. Look at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Basically, like, who's going to set themselves against you if, if you are the type of person that's for goodness, for humility, for kindness, uh, for loving other people, right? Now, you can imagine the objections to this, and we'll get to those in a second, but here's, here's a little fun fact. I personally, really believe that this world we live in is way more strange than we're comfortable with, right? After all, there's literally an unseen realm with angels and demons and principalities, and many of the stories we see in Scripture are not easily explained. If you ever want to chat me up on Genesis chapter 6, I got all the time in the world, right? Because I'm not convinced there ain't something weird going on there, right? Doesn't mean I'm a conspiracy theorist, right? I just like to think of myself as a mystery hunter, I also think that people aren't generally benevolent and that there's a lot of people in the world looking to use power and money to manipulate others. However, let me just share something with you. Even if Bill Gates had all the money in the world and he could do all those crazy cockamamie things that he says he wants to do, you know and I know that Bill Gates isn't really ruling and reigning over the universe, right? Because who is? Who is? Christ. Bill Gates ain't going to take his spot at any point in time. And one day, Bill Gates is going to stand before Jesus and bow the knee and be like, oh man, I wish I would have known this earlier. We don't have to really worry about Bill Gates because Jesus is in charge of everything. So let's calm down a little bit, right? Amen? Let's just calm down a little bit. Not everything is a conspiracy. Some things are. I do believe in conspiracies. I believe people are rotten, and I don't trust hardly anybody in government. That's one of the things that just makes me unique, I guess. Some Christians, though, some Christians look at everything and they just think there's, there's something buried, right? If you're more interested in sharing the latest Mark of the Beast theory or sensationalistic conspiracy theory you may be picked up from a 10-year-old article in The Inquirer, if you're more interested in those things than talking to people about the Lordship of Christ, you need to get your heart right because it's in the wrong place. You're trusting the wrong things. And honestly, whatever the mark of the beast is, brothers and sisters, Christians can't get it. Scripture says very clearly, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. If you got the Holy Spirit and you're in Christ, you have no worries about the mark of the beast. You can't possibly get it, okay? Problem solved. Yes? So don't worry about that. 
By the way, Jesus is ruling and reigning. Many Christians seem to see persecution in everything. Every slight, every cross look or terse word is because the world hates Christians. Now, this is certainly the case in some areas, right? But Peter reminds us that generally speaking, if we're zealous to live redemptively, kind, encouraging, and humble, there might not be a large amount of people who would be eager to set themselves against us. The reality is so many of us can be angry, snarky, self-righteous, and arrogant. And one of the mistakes that we make, like if you go out here in Cedar Rapids, you're going to meet a lot of people who are atheists or Buddhists or Muslim or, or Hindu, and they're not out to see you dead. You can actually have a good conversation with them about things, and you hope and pray that that conversation will turn towards ultimate reality. But when you walk out this door, not everybody in town who's not a Christian is looking to shoot you. Do you agree? Right? That's, that's true. And sometimes we just set ourselves, we puff ourselves up, and we just anticipate that when I go out, if somebody finds out I'm a Christian, they're going to come after me. That's not necessarily true. If we're living like Christ, there are a lot of situations in people who aren't Christians will at least respect our behavior if we're kind and humble and winsome. Yeah? Not to the detriment of sharing the gospel, but in support of it. And look, there have been plenty of times in my life where I was mocked because of a very modest, kind presentation of my beliefs. The first job I ever had, I got Bible boy the whole duration of the job. That's what they called me, Bible boy. I like to think it was endearing, but I'm not sure that it was. So I know. I know a little bit about it. But look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Did you catch that? Peter says, in many cases, in many places, it's probably the case that if you're humble, kind, peace-seeking, and loving, you will likely make a good impression on people who aren't believers. However, let's say you really do encounter suffering and persecution because of the gospel of Christ and an eagerness to share that gospel with others. Peter says, you will be blessed, not you might be blessed, you will be blessed. Now, how is it possible for us to view suffering as a blessing in this case? Because of the opportunity it will produce, Peter says, testifying to Christ as the only source of hope in a world of suffering. This is going to stand out at work and at school. When you find yourself being mocked, when you find yourself in suffering of any kind, and people are like, why are you still so kind? Why are you still so humble? And your answer is, because my hope is not in anything in this world. My hope is firmly fixed in Christ, who is Lord of all. They may not like that. It's pretty hard to argue against that. Setting apart Christ as Lord is acknowledging that not one iota of suffering takes place without permission from Jesus. There's no corner of the earth in which suffering occurs that Christ is not actively speaking to that at all times, right? We, we don't have to be troubled because the presence of suffering is not the absence of blessing. Instead, when Christians encounter this suffering, we take advantage of the opportunity to speak to how suffering can find meaning. And that's when we talk about work and school and bumping shoulders with people who don't believe the same things and they're not convinced of the gospel. We often worry about how to bring up the gospel with coworkers and classmates, right? Like, how am I going to get into a conversation about the gospel? Many of us fail to see that the one common experience that draws us all to search for understanding is suffering that we encounter. You want to know a quick way to talk to people and meet up in, in the pain is start asking them, What's a, what, what are you encountering right now? What things are you going through right now? You know, can I pray for you? Is there anything happening? Or if you know that they're struggling with something, entering into that conversation with humility, with hopes of sharing your hope in Christ, right? 
or living in a way that they actually ask you that. And young people, I want to talk to you. Teenagers, I want to talk to you for a second. You are surrounded by a generation that's so desperate for meaning, identity, and purpose. Their primary responses are either to despair and take their lives or attempt to take their lives or to retreat into a fantasy world where they prefer to become something other than what they've actually been created to be, even if it is destructive, mutilating fantasy. Young people are so despondent right now. It seems like the world is so out of control that you will have biological males who say, no, no, I really think I'll be happier being a girl, and biological females who say, no, no, I really think I'm going to be happier being a boy, or kids who are like, I really think I'm a cat, or kids who are like, I really think I'm a dog, or I really think I'm an alien. They have no hope. They have no meaning. If you have set Christ apart as Lord, young person, you believe he is ruling, and you believe he is the one who is making meaning in the midst of our greatest despair, then you have an opportunity to enter in, right, to live in a way that's loving, to testify by both your actions and your words of the goodness of God. And then when they ask you, why are you so different? You share that the God who created them knows them, the real them, not the fake them, not the them that the world tells them they need to be or they should be, the real them. Because he knit them together in their mother's womb and that he has removed every obstacle that would keep them from finding hope and meaning. Let them know that they were created on purpose for purpose that is eternal. If you lift up Jesus, young person, I promise you, if you lift up Jesus, he will do the work. Please. I mean, we can complain all day long about what led us to this place, but Christian, if we would live as though we believe that Jesus is good and he is in control, we would not be afraid to enter into suffering and say, I know this stinks but can I share with you the hope that I have? We're to be prepared in our suffering to make a defense to anyone for the reason of the hope we have. This means that if we have set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, suffering points us to hope, not despair. We know that he is exerting all his power over suffering to work for his glory and our good. Pretty sure you can find that in the Bible somewhere. Romans maybe. And the reason that we do it, Peter says, with gentleness and respect is because we're not the source of our own hope. Christ is. We're humble because we didn't make this up. We received it, right? What we've received from Christ is a hope in the midst of our suffering. It makes us tender-hearted towards other people as we know that they will enter suffering in some way, in some form. And we don't give them patent answers. We don't just try to argue them quickly into this. We sit in it with them. We reverently attest to the deep hope that we have in knowing that Christ is Lord over all things, including and especially the things that hurt the most. If you're suffering today, believer, let me assure you, Jesus is with you. He's not just hanging out being like, I hope this works out okay. And parents, just a word for us, we need to stop protecting our kids from unpleasantness, trying to shield them from everything, you know, like put them in a bubble. They live in a sinful world with an active enemy, so don't take the edge off the pain that everybody already knows is there. Lean into helping them see that Christ, the Lord of all, has entered into it with them. Suffering is unpleasant. Suffering without meaning is unbearable. Peter emphasizes that it's more preferable to suffer for doing good if it's by God's will than to suffer because of doing evil. Because suffering with Christ as the center of our hope and our meaning is a testimony to the life-changing power of the gospel.
right? And then in verse 18, Peter says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. See, we aren't to look at sharing the gospel as an academic exercise or something that we just should be doing. When we set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts, everything that we encounter has more meaning than we could have thought, right? Everything has more meaning, not less, because Christ is ruling and reigning. So everything that's existing right now is not out of His control. So there is meaning in it, even the worst things that we encounter. We don't, we don't presume to know the explanations for those things, but we know that Christ does. There's nothing that's wasted including and maybe especially our own suffering. So we embrace what the Lord has allowed, as Peter said, believing that it will become an opportunity for us to speak about the hope that we have that will never be taken from us. And we commend to those around us that there is hope and salvation in no one else but Christ, who is Lord of all. C.S. Lewis, in a book called The Grief Observed, he was mourning the loss of his wife through an arduous battle with cancer. Lewis had wished that he could take his wife's place, and he said this in the book, if, if only I could bear it, or the worst of it, or any of it instead of her. And if you've lost a loved one, you know that pain. I wish I could take that. And when my dad was passing away from cancer, there was part. You're like, man, I wish I could just, I wish I could take some of this. C.S. Lewis through his struggle with faith while his wife was suffering, he came to find this out. The, the meaning of real love to Lewis was to step in and take someone else's pain and suffering in their place, right? This is what led him to a deeper understanding of the lordship of Christ in a time when his faith was being battered. He says this in the book. It was allowed to one, we are told. And I find I can now believe again that he has done vicariously whatever can be so done. He replies to our babble, you cannot and you dare not, I could, and I dared. See, sharing Christ with others must come from a deep conviction that Christ is Lord. The reason and the proof for his lordship are found in the rejection, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And being convinced of this at our core gives us both the compassion to enter in and the confidence to do so. Lewis was convinced that the most loving thing you could do would be to take someone's pain, but he knew that none of us could do it, but he also knew that God did. God did. Jesus Christ did. And that's why he's ruling and reigning. Christ is Lord. And we need to remember that no one calls him Lord but by the Spirit of God. So when you share the gospel with people and you enter into suffering and you're sharing the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, they're not going to reject the gospel because we aren't persuasive enough or winsome enough. They're not going to reject the gospel because we're perfect in our actions, which you won't be, and we're perfect in our mood all the time, which we won't be. And they're they're not going to reject the gospel because maybe we stumble over their objections to the faith. No one calls Jesus Lord apart from the Spirit. So we share Christ because we trust Him as Lord to accomplish everything that's necessary for the salvation of those who are His. you get that? Like we trust the Lord. We enter into these conversations because you don't have to seal the deal. And to leave this out is dangerously close to assuming that we might love that person more than Jesus does or we might be able to persuade them of the reality of Him more than He can. Right? You see what's going on there? It's an assumption that we make. We sort of subtly think, well, maybe he's not in control. Sometimes our idea that we're unable to correctly share the gospel is an internal hesitancy to believe that Christ is able. 
Share the gospel with the people around you at work, at school, and you won't screw it up. If you're speaking the word of God, you're sharing the testimony, what do you do? you're not going to screw it up. You know why? Because you're not the one who saves. Jesus is. And remember, one of the biggest objections to the gospel is not intellectual, it's emotional. If we're listening and observing to people, right, if we step away from our great arguments for just a second and see that many are looking for meaning in a world of suffering, they need to know that the world's not completely out of control, right? So we're kind, we're gentle, we're humble, and we enter in because we're deeply convicted that Christ is Lord. The thing is, it's not just about what you know. It's not the information you have. It's about how what you know has changed you. Not what do you know, but is it true? What difference does it make that Christ is Lord, and what difference can it make to those around you? Right? So when we live in this certainty, and we're doing so in front of coworkers and classmates and teammates, they are able to witness not only our testimony to the gospel, but a life that's changed by its reality. And when everything is falling apart in their lives, and we enter in with compassion, we're able to tell them only in Christ can we make any sense of it. When they ask, how in the world are you able to live like that? Our response is this, because Christ is Lord. Amen? So, is Christ really Lord? Right? We had four people this morning, two of them being young teenagers, who stood in front of a whole congregation and said, I profess Jesus is Lord. He really is the Son of God. He really is Lord. He really did die for this, my sins. He really did rise again. I really want to follow him, and it's by his grace that I'll do it. That's amazing. Jesus is still changing lives, so we can trust him. Is Christ really Lord? Have you put your trust in Christ for all things? Are you so convinced that you're willing to put your own ego and reputation on the line to testify this to others? Do you trust Christ to reign well, or are you living as though you believe he needs your help? just some questions for us as we close up today. First, what is my immediate response when I'm mocked, reviled, or treated unfairly? Do I make appeals to my own sufficiency? Do I retaliate? Do I despair? Or do I turn to the Lord? What about our words? What are the words of my mouth revealing about the reality of my heart? How would hiding God's word help me look to Christ more readily? A couple questions might be, am I a jerk at work? See how I made that rhyme? Am I a jerk at work? Because if you are, People probably don't want to hear about Jesus. If that's the Jesus that you've got that makes you a jerk, they probably don't want to hear about that. Am I a fool at school, right? Does my behavior betray what I would say is my hope? And third is this. Who might I invite into an investigation of the reality of Christ as Lord of all? Just ask somebody, maybe to read the Bible with you, to hear about it. Hey, can we talk? Maybe get to know somebody that you work with or go to school with to the level where you can actually know what they're suffering with, what they're struggling with, and pray for them and then wait for the right time to enter in with the hope of the gospel. But let's all admit and confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, for your word. Thank you for the testimony that you bear of yourself. Ask that you would help us to... um, have great hope that uh, what Scripture says is true, that Christ really is Lord. Father, we don't always see that in our suffering. We, we admit that we, uh, our faith is shaken. We have doubts. We have struggles. We encounter suffering, and we automatically think uh, something's wrong here and everything's out of control. Lord, help us to remember that suffering is not the absence of blessing and that you really are in control of all things. Father, we love you and we praise your name. It's in Christ's name we pray.